Hey y'all, we'll be back next month with episode 3, but in the meantime, here's another bizarre tale of Texan utopia we hope you enjoy. I'm Ryan Sheffield, and this is a Texarkana footnote for episode 2. C.W. Post was only 13 years old when he got accepted into the University of Illinois. He was a smart and motivated kid, to say the least, but school was boring. He felt like it was just holding him back, delaying his ambitions and wasting his time. So at age 15, he dropped out and got to work, determined to make his mark on the world. His mother was a poet and his father a traveling entrepreneur. Post inherited his mother's gift for communication, and like his father, he was a passionate, restless, and intense perfectionist who just couldn't stick with one place or one job. He had to do it all, and when he lost interest in one project, he just moved on to the next. Some historians speculate he might have been bipolar, ADHD, and manic depressive, among other things, but the diagnosis at the time was a much simpler one. C.W. Post was an eccentric and a genius. Post always knew he was destined for greatness, and he was right. Her name was Ella Merriweather, and they tied the knot in 1874, and a few years later had a daughter, Marjorie. Ella was quiet, reclusive, and somber. She was everything Post wasn't, and he fed off it. The flames of creativity and ambition had always burned inside him, but with her tenderness and love, it swelled to an inferno that no one, even she, could contain. But their relationship was a one-sided exchange. The more she gave him, loved him, fanned the flames within him, the more he gave himself to his projects, traveling, working, obsessing, until there was nothing left of him to give, even for her or their daughter. Once they'd settled into a house, Ella gave CW money to start a farm equipment business, one he could manage and operate from home. She didn't care what it cost, as long as it might finally allow them to spend some real quality time together. It panned out about as well as she expected, and not at all as she'd hoped. Post designed his own equipment and improved on some existing designs, and it was a huge success. The business was growing fast and their wealth along with it, but it didn't take CW long to fall back into his old habits. He overloaded himself with projects more than anyone could handle and began taking them out on the road spreading himself paper thin and leaving Ella behind to care for their child, alone. It was just that he was on the cusp of greatness, so close he could almost touch it, success beyond their wildest dreams was right there for the taking. If only he could push himself just a little farther, a little harder, a little longer. CW was filing patents left and right, but Ella was falling apart. They both were. When a scammer tried to take advantage of Post's elderly parents in an attempt to steal their assets, the stress finally pushed him over the edge, and everything, all at once, came crashing down. The fire inside him that had burned white hot for so long abruptly burned out, and in 1885, at the age of 31, C.W. Post had his first mental breakdown. The doctors insisted he take some time off, and with a little coaxing from Ella, he begrudgingly agreed to take a brief leave of absence from his businesses, just until he felt well enough to get back in the race. Ella was there to care for him, and he took comfort in her warmth, and as shameful as it might have felt, she took solace in his setback. And why shouldn't she? He needed to heal, and she needed him home, with her and Marjorie. For the first time in their life together, they felt like a real family, 
They spent hours together by the fire, with Marjorie curled up asleep at their side, cutting tiny holes in music sheets for their player piano, one of his own design, of course. For Ella, it didn't matter what they did, as long as they were doing it together. She cherished it, every moment of it, because she knew in her heart it wouldn't last. Post's firm fell apart without his leadership, and the bank forced it into liquidation. It was the first time he'd ever tasted true failure in his career, and he didn't care for it, and it wouldn't happen again. Ella pleaded with him. He wasn't ready to go back to work, to that kind of stress. It could kill him. But the embers that smoldered inside him for months had again roared to a blaze, and there was no changing his mind. He was, however, willing to compromise, at least a little. He recalled something the doctors had told him. You might consider moving somewhere with a warmer climate. Texas, maybe? Once he'd managed to smooth things over with his lenders and partners and rescue his reputation from the brink, C.W. Post and his brother took a trip to Texas. They bought Stetson cowboy hats and set out on the trails, meeting the locals, hitching along with cowboys, driving their cattle, and just soaking up the scenery. They were enamored of it, all of it. It was like they'd stepped out of the world and into a dime novel of the Wild West. One day, Post sat beneath a mesquite tree on the Caprock Escarpment, way out in the west, looking out at the endless valley below, and he had a vision, a city, one of his own design, naturally. One where anyone, no matter how poor, could buy a house with a low down payment and a low mortgage without the burden of a bank. A new kind of town, where the free market could flourish and with a little guidance from Post himself, lift up people of all stripes together to prosperity. He'd made a career on succeeding where others had failed, and it just felt like destiny. One day, C.W. Post was gonna build a utopia, and he would make it work. He and his brother bought a 200-acre ranch just outside of Fort Worth. They agreed it was an area ripe for growth, but C.W. had a grander vision. A state-of-the-art city with a trolley system, aspirational public works, an electrical grid of his own design, and so much more. Post named it Sylvania, and though his aspirations for the city never really panned out, the two years he spent developing the area, known these days as Riverside, had honed his skills as a city manager and sold him on the promise of Texas. He bought himself a few more Stetsons, some boots, and a bolo tie, and he never took them off again. When he finally returned home to Ella with the good news, he found her tending to Marjorie with the shades drawn, pale and weak. She was ill, he knew that much, but he just couldn't see it, didn't understand. All that time alone, so deprived of his love and companionship, she missed him so much and so deeply, she was literally wasting away. All she needed was him. But oblivious and self-absorbed as ever, he decided what she needed was just a little change of scenery, somewhere with a warmer climate. So in 1888, the family moved to Fort Worth, Texas, and things went well, for a little while at least. As the leaves changed and began to fall, the autumn winds blew in and again snuffed out the fire inside him. The doctors in Texas had no diagnosis for post-condition. They'd never seen anything like it. But the prognosis was definitive and bleak. Whatever plagued C.W. Post, they said, was chronic, incurable, and fatal. But Ella refused to accept that. She already knew the cure for her husband's maladies, ample rest, and her nurturing love. 
Post again took a leave of absence, this time relaxing with his family on the eastern seaboard. El attended to his every need for two years, but his health, mental and physical, wasn't freefall, and things were looking grim. For all her suffering and sacrifice and sorrow, Ella was forced to accept that this time, not even her boundless love would be enough to save him. She started looking into treatment options and travel arrangements all over the country, but even in his near catatonic state, CW was adamant that traditional medicine was out of the question. It had failed him too many times, and if he couldn't find some new kind of treatment to try, he'd just let nature take its course. Luckily, Ella came through for him. By the time they arrived at the facility in Battle Creek, Michigan, CW was in such a state that the nurses had to wheel him in on a gurney with his hands and feet tied down by leather straps. Ella let go of his pale, feeble hand, and as he disappeared into the frantic swarm of white coats, she wept. Battle Creek Sanitarium was an unorthodox facility, to say the least. Founded and operated by the Seventh-day Adventist Church, it was a gathering place for the incurable and desperate, people willing to try anything when nothing else worked. It was kind of a testing ground for new treatments, albeit with a religious bent, and they experimented with everything from vegetarianism to hypnotism. Post was assigned to the facility's director and top physician, Dr. John Harvey Kellogg, a devout Adventist who abhorred alcohol, tobacco, and caffeine, and served his patients a steady diet of his own creations, including what would eventually become known as cornflakes and granola. Over the next 10 months, the two men bonded over their shared interests, passions, drive, and, well, just about everything else. The two were so similar in so many ways, their whole relationship feels like it was boned in from the land of bad fiction. They were both obsessive, eccentric, maniacally driven entrepreneurs, inventors, and connoisseurs of the experimental and strange. Both were born into families of the ownership class in the Midwest, both with a preternatural gift for marketing, and both married to a woman named Ella, whom they neglected, overburdened, and used. They still had their differences, though. Post wanted to build a utopia in Texas, while Kellogg wanted to preserve sexual purity by starting the American circumcision trend and pouring carbonic acid on the genitals of little girls. In another life, they might have been the best of friends, but their obsessive need to be the best at everything instead made them into bitter rivals, and eventually, two of the most famous competitors in the history of American business. In November of 1891, Dr. Kellogg summoned Ella to come pick up her husband, he was looking a little healthier and stronger, but still bound to a wheelchair. He's not going to get well, Kellogg told her. I've done everything I know how to do. But Ella refused to give up on him, and with her support, CW continued to pursue treatment. Oddly enough, it was a program of hypnosis and so-called mental therapeutics, developed by the Church of Christ scientist that eventually restored him to health. His brush with death and Dr. Kellogg rekindled the fire inside him like never before. Post moved his family to Battle Creek, seemingly just to spite his former doctor and newfound rival. He opened his own sanitarium, the Levita Inn, and published a book called I Am Well, with an exclamation point at the end. It was basically a pseudo-scientific, spiritual self-help book for the rich and trendy. It claimed that illnesses didn't actually exist, and that all maladies could easily be overcome by way of a, quote, mind cure, 
or more plainly, by thinking real hard about them until they go away. So basically Scientology, just without all the aliens. The book sales went okay, but the sanitarium flopped, and Post quickly moved on to his next big endeavor, a new company, Post Holdings, that would manufacture and sell innovative new breakfast foods, inspired by the healthful diets of the Christian scientists and Seventh-day Adventists who'd healed him. Drawing from a recipe he learned from the wives of ranch hands back in Texas, he developed a caffeine-free coffee substitute he called Postum Food Coffee, and it surprisingly did pretty well. But his next product, Grape Nuts, took his business to a whole new level. It was a near-identical ripoff of the granola biscuits Dr. Kellogg had created and served in the sanitarium, prompting the doctor and now co-founder of the Kellogg Cereal Company to get Post a new nickname in the newspapers, the original imitator. Post just let it roll off his back, though. At that point, his pilfering of Kellogg's idea had made him one of the richest men in America, and he wasn't done twisting the knife. He ripped off another of Kellogg's creations, cornflakes, and called it Elijah's Mana. The name didn't go over well with religious groups, though, so he eventually rebranded it as Post Toasty's Double Crisp Cornflakes and marketed it as a luxury alternative to Kellogg's cereal. Some folks say he got his gift for language from his mother, the poet, and he put it to use in a way no one up to that point had ever done before. As one historian noted, he didn't care who managed production or sales, as long as he wrote the advertising. In 1895, he launched a massive newspaper ad buy, the first nationwide ad campaign in American history, making him the largest advertiser in the country and earning him the nickname, the grandfather of advertising. And for good reason. He called his strategy plain words for plain people and specifically targeted women with his ads, which was unprecedented at the time. As he put it, fancy words were intimidating to housewives and he wanted to build trust with the demographic through what he called intimacy and relatability. Post liked to say his mantra was simplicity, sincerity, and truth. There's no denying that he nailed the first part, simplicity and sincerity, but truth, not so much. His advertisements routinely fear-mongered about imaginary diseases, coffee neuralgia, coffee heart, brain fag, and other conditions supposedly caused by what he called the drug drink. It is safe to say, one ad read, that one in every three among coffee users has an incipient or advanced form of disease. And the cure? Postum's food coffee, of course. As he put it, a rational method of dismissing sickness that would make the blood redder and put folks on the road to Wellville. He also claimed that grape nuts could cure malaria, consumption, appendicitis, and even loose teeth. In an effort to get a piece of post-success for themselves, his competitors began to mimic his style, setting the tone for a century of American marketing and cutting into his sales. His friends and advisors urged him to cut corners on Postum to bring down the cost and recapture market share, but he refused to compromise the integrity of the product. Instead, he tried something crazy. He created a fake company called Monk's Brew that sold the original recipe Postum, but under a generic label for one-fifth of the price effectively driving out all competitors for his brand name. Needless to say, Post was a ruthless businessman, and he made a lot of enemies, not just among his competitors, but with factory workers across the country. He loathed labor unions and supported so-called open shops, basically the 19th century equivalent of right-to-work laws, and he lectured in their favor at any opportunity. He even took out full-page newspaper ads denigrating unions, 
sparking a national boycott of his products by organized labor. His reputation as an anti-union capitalist monster would come to eclipse his legacy to this day. But if the study of history teaches us anything, it's that things, events, and especially people are almost always more complicated than they might seem. The employees at Post Factories and at every level of his companies really liked him. In many ways, he was a model business owner committed to safe, clean work environments and fair wages. He felt an almost paternalistic bond with those who worked for him, obsessing over their needs, opening his office door to them regardless of rank or tenure. And he was genuinely aggrieved when his ventures became too large for him to know every employee on a personal level. He was also a crucial player in the passage of the Pure Food and Drugs Act. It was put forth in the wake of Upton Sinclair's novel, The Jungle, famous for exposing the horrors of turn-of-the-century factory food production. The law paved the way for the establishment of the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, the FDA, and his advocacy helped make it a reality. Post's opposition to unions was based on his misguided belief that most, if not all, factory owners were just like him, passionate about repaying the debt that he truly believed he owed to society for his success. He was the quintessential compassionate capitalist, and one of his greatest failings was that he never recognized just how rare of a person he actually was. There's no doubt that Post was a self-obsessed, myopic, and often cutthroat businessman, but there's also a possibility that if he knew how much damage his open shop policies were actually doing to workers across the country, if he could only see beyond himself, it may very well have devastated him. Put simply, he is the kind of person that Cabay and Considerant would have publicly loathed, but gladly lobbied for funding. But for all his charity and goodwill, he never once extended that kindness or appreciation to his eternally devoted wife. In the 15 years since she wheeled him out of Kellogg's sanitarium, Ella had watched from the sidelines while CW rocketed to international fame and wealth beyond their wildest dreams. She was proud of him, and she loved him more deeply than any man deserves. But she'd also raised their daughter alone, and Marjorie was 17 by that point. She was her own person now, bound for college and a career. And after two decades of withering isolation and neglect, the thought of being alone in that giant house, so full of love with no one left to give it to, was more than Ella could possibly bear. She became perpetually ill, frail, and consumed by sadness. She was all but a ghost, wandering aimlessly in the halls of a mansion that was all but abandoned. In 1904, Poe started having an affair with his secretary, and even after Ella found out, she begged him not to leave her. She offered her forgiveness, her understanding, anything to save their marriage. But to Post, she was nothing more than an old project that no longer held his interest. He was bored and ready to move on to the next thing, he filed for divorce against her wishes and left her wholly and completely alone in the world. Ella Merriweather Post died only a few months later, as Marjorie would later put it, of a broken heart. C.W. Post abruptly decided to go all in on Utopia, on Texas. We can't say for sure what sparked it. Maybe Ella's death set something off inside him, igniting that eternal flame one last time as a funeral pyre. Whatever it was, he formed a new company, W, or Wtopia, and bought 333 acres of land in the staked plains of the Texas Panhandle. 
It was about 40 miles southeast of Lubbock, nestled along the Caprock Escarpment where he first had his vision beneath that mesquite tree all those years before. It's also 45 miles south of Estacado, the old Quaker ghost town. In 1907, two freight wagons, stacked impossibly high and pulled by a line of 72 mules, began the trek to West Texas. Post spared no expense in the endeavor. If there were no roads or freight stations along the path, he built them, taking extra care to ensure the happiness and well-being of both worker and mule throughout the journey. Though when he tried replacing the cowhands' coffee with Postum's food coffee for a few days, they threatened to strike till they got their drug drink back. Construction began minutes after they arrived at the future site of Post-Utopia. He hired workers from nearby towns and brought others all the way down from his headquarters up in Battle Creek. It was a massive workforce, and they managed to build 35 houses within only a few months. The homesteads were sectioned off into uniform plots, each one catty-corner to another so, as Post put it, the housewives who eventually would live there would never feel lonely. On May 10th, Post received a telegraph at his office in Battle Creek from one of his partners, bearing a bit of bad news. Garza County had just been surveyed, and Post City was eight miles away from the geographic center. For a city to qualify as a county seat, Texas law required it be within four miles of the center. So Post hopped on the first train down from Michigan to scout a new location, and he found a suitable spot just a few miles away. He ordered all his workers and residents to abandon the original site, pick up anything and everything, including structures that could feasibly be transported and move the entire town to the new location. The original site is still a small town. These days it's known as Close City. Construction picked up right where it left off and thanks to the proximity of a huge deposit of white sandstone, the new location had its own natural supply of raw materials. In a matter of months, they'd built mills, workshops, a building that could house eight stores, and the first concrete building ever erected in the region. They blasted and built roads all through the county, and by June, Post City was elected the county seat of Garza. Post was traveling constantly, back and forth from Michigan to Texas, juggling his many business ventures and the lawsuit over his dubious claim that grape nuts was a cure for appendicitis. By the end of the first year, Post City had 300 residents, and it was growing exponentially. People were arriving faster than homes could be constructed, and Post's massive workforce could finish a house in only 11 days. So he hired even more workers, and he quickly built a hotel, the Algerita, to house folks until their new home could be built. The Algerita was a marvel for the time, and Post literally designed the entire thing from the ground up. He drew the blueprints, designed the furniture, handpicked the artwork, and even laid out specific instructions for the engineering of the elevator, the first ever built in West Texas. The hotel had 30 rooms, each one stocked with postum and grape nuts, and tended by a housekeeping crew that changed the linens after every guest, which was, as gross as it might sound, unheard of at the time. Post even designed the menu for the kitchen, making a special point to critique the verbiage. He once told the staff, when you have roast beef with juice, say so. Don't say, oh, juice. Don't try to make the cowpunchers out in the country think we're a lot of frog-eating French. By 1910, Post City had office buildings, drugstores, restaurants, machine shops, grocery stores, a lumber yard, a movie theater, a school, a Masonic lodge, a volunteer fire department, and a baseball team coached by Post himself. A year later, they had an all-women's basketball team and a women's literary society. He even built the first mill in the nation that could take raw cotton all the way to the finished product. 
and so-called Garza sheets became a coveted item for celebrities and the wealthy all over the world. Post City had become a progressive mini-metropolis in the middle of Texan nowhere, with seemingly nowhere to go but up. There were problems, of course, tornadoes, dust storms, and 110 degree heat for starters, but Post was maniacally dedicated to finding solutions for everything outside an act of God. And even then, well, I'll get to that in a minute. The city was 80 miles from the nearest railway, and transportation was a serious problem, but not for Post. He used his connections and clout to set up a sweetheart deal with the Santa Fe Railroad, convincing them to build a direct line from Lubbock, and soon tourists and future residents were arriving by the carload, as many as 11 passenger cars per day. Post even trained 20 mules to establish a functioning postal service between the city and other nearby towns. The population was doubling by the year, and water soon became a big concern. West Texas is a notoriously dry place, so much so that the countless wells, pipelines, windmills, and rain reservoirs he'd built weren't nearly enough. For a time, Post even paid workers to bring in water by wagon all day and all night. But once again, Post spared no expense. He pumped what today would amount to nearly a million dollars into the project, and by 1912, they had the most expansive and advanced waterworks in the region. But it still wasn't enough, at least not for CW Post. When he envisioned his utopia that day beneath the mesquite tree, he saw a city lush with greenery, flowers, and trees, an oasis in the middle of a desert. It was practically impossible, but impossible was kind of his thing. He paid to have the roads lined on either side with trees. He built parks, vineyards, and orchards, and even a man-made lake for swimming and cookouts. But all that green space required a lot of water, and if Post wanted to make his dream a reality, he'd have to find another way to irrigate the land. He recalled having heard stories of something he called rain battles, tales from soldiers in the Napoleonic Wars who claimed the heavy blasts of cannons had shaken the clouds, causing rain to fall in sheets upon the blood-soaked battlefields. As crazy as that sounds, the US Army, sponsored by Congress and the Department of Agriculture, had actually experimented with that very thing in Midland, Texas, a few decades earlier. It didn't work, and as far as we can tell, Post didn't even know they tried. But even if he had known about the Army's failures at rainmaking, we're pretty sure it wouldn't have changed a thing. In 1910, he attached two pounds of dynamite to a kite and lit it on fire. He pretty quickly ruled that option out, deeming it a little too dangerous. So next he tried 14-pound piles of dynamite spaced 50 feet apart over a quarter mile and lit in 10-minute intervals. But still, the clouds just weren't shaken. Undeterred, he upped it to 3,000 pounds of dynamite, and immediately after the gargantuan blast, it actually rained. Of course, it could have had something to do with the fact that it was the short, rainy season in the panhandle at the time, but Post wasn't much for coincidences. He tried one last time, detonating 24,000 pounds of dynamite, but no rain. He gave up on the project in 1912, citing, quote, more important matters to attend to. But he still claimed that he had a success rate of 7 out of 10. In 1913, he opened a sanitarium, billing it as the best medical facility in the West. And it almost lived up to that superlative. In fact, it had the only training center for nurses west of St. Louis at the time, and their record was nothing to scoff at. Post even instituted a form of socialized medicine, one of the first such experiments in America ever and the citizens loved it. 
There's not much written about it, and it was almost certainly funded by Post himself. But it happened in Texas. Post City had over 3,000 residents by 1914, and for the first time, it had become self-sufficient. It no longer needed Post there to micromanage things. So he traveled to California for a much-deserved and much-needed vacation. He'd achieved his dream, his labor of love, and his final project. But when he wiped the dirt from his hands and settled into his chair to bask in all he'd done, he felt nothing but emptiness. Marjorie was off living a life of her own now, and Ella was no longer waiting for him on the sidelines to take him into her arms in the comfort and warmth of her embrace. She was gone, a casualty of his own success. He'd taken for granted her undying love, and it killed her. And now, he finally understood her. He understood what it meant to be truly alone. He soon fell deathly ill, and his mind was cracking like hairlines and glass, falling away in bits and shards. And the fire inside him, again and forever, burned out. The president of the Santa Fe Railroad personally arranged and paid for his transport to the Mayo Clinic in Minnesota, where Post's parents and daughter Marjorie rushed to be by his side. No amount of grape nuts, it seems, was enough to defy God's ironic plan. The doctors diagnosed him with emergency acute appendicitis and immediately took him into surgery. It was a success, and he soon returned home to California. For months, his recovery was going well, even better than expected, really. But some wounds run deeper than any surgeon's scalpel can reach. Those doctors in Texas, 30 years before, had been right after all. Whatever it was that plagued C.W. Post was incurable and fatal. There's a taste of heaven in perfect health, he once said, and a taste of hell in sickness. On May 9th, 1914, C.W. Post sat down in his chair in his ranch house in Santa Barbara, California, put the barrel of his shotgun in his mouth, and pulled the trigger. At the beginning of World War I, the residents of Post City started to worry about all the dynamite Post had left behind from his rain battles, fearing that German spies might somehow sneak into the town and use the stash for their nefarious purposes. It was pretty far-fetched but the town board decided it was better to be safe than sorry. They detonated the 20,000 plus pounds of leftover explosives, reverberating for miles through the Caprock escarpment and shaking the clouds of the West Texas sky. And for the record, it didn't rain. Post City, Texas, now just Post Texas, outlived its namesake though. It's still a quaint little town, not quite the lush green utopia Post had longed for but a slice of small town heaven in its own way. The sanitarium he built is still there, converted now into a museum of Garza County's history, and you should stop in if you're ever passing by that way. There's one more footnote to this footnote we want to tell you about. When her father died, Marjorie inherited his empire, making her the richest woman in the world at the age of 27. She was famous for her boundless energy and stunning beauty, a starlet among celebrities in the upper class. But she learned a lot from her father. He taught her how to stand up for herself. At eight years old, she decked a bully who was harassing little girls in their neighborhood. He also taught her how to run a business, letting her sit in on company meetings from the age of nine. He taught her to love flowers. He also taught her obsessiveness. 
and she made her butlers use yardsticks to determine exact placement of dinner plates for her parties. But above all, he taught her that success came with a debt, a duty to give back to the world that had made it possible and to never look down, but instead always strive to lift people up. Ignoring the naysaying of her colleagues and husband, she initiated a series of acquisitions and mergers, buying Jell-O and bird's eye frozen food, among others, and building an empire she called General Foods Corporation. And despite her wealth and lavish parties, her everyday wardrobe came from Sears. When she wasn't putting on airs for celebrity dinner guests, she was donating everything she had, her time and her money, to the betterment of the world that had given her so much. Marjorie funded a U.S. Army hospital in France during World War I, earning her the French Legion of Honor. She financed and personally supervised a Salvation Army food station in New York during the Depression, feeding up to a thousand people a day. She paid the entire cost for the Boy Scouts of America headquarters in Washington. She donated $100,000 to allow high school students free access to the National Symphony for an entire year then founded the Music for Young America program to keep it going annually. And even after her death in 1973, she continued to give. She willed her Washington home and all of its antiques and jewels to the Smithsonian Museum, including a necklace Napoleon Bonaparte gifted to Marie Louise and a pair of diamond earrings that were sewed into Marie Antoinette's dress on the day of her execution. But her most famous gift was her massive 58-bedroom estate in Florida, which she willed to the US government to be used as a sort of winter retreat where presidents could meet with foreign dignitaries. But Richard Nixon was partial to another property and Jimmy Carter just wasn't interested. With the immense cost of maintenance and security, it just wasn't worth it. So in 1981, the government returned ownership of the property to the Post Foundation. Marjorie's daughters listed it for sale with a price tag of $20 million, but there wasn't much interest, and the city even had plans to demolish it and make room for new developments. Real estate mogul Donald Trump offered them $15 million for the property, but the family rejected it. Trump, as you might expect, took it as a personal affront. To get back at the family, he bought the land between their estate and the ocean from the owner of Kentucky Fried Chicken. No joke. If they didn't agree to sell him the property, he threatened to build homes that would block the Post's view of the ocean and tank the value of the land. They eventually caved, and Trump bought the property in 1985 for a third of their asking price. The estate meticulously designed and built by Marjorie Post and donated as a final act of her family's legacy of charity did eventually become a winter White House of sorts, though not quite in the way she likely envisioned. She gave it a name before she died, a pretty one that meant sea to lake, Mar-a-Lago. Texarkana is written and produced by us, Ryan Sheffield and Brad Dewar. See you soon, and thanks for listening, y'all.